0: Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm Jan, your host, and I am really happy today to have Lauren Crow and Ben Wagner from the Heathen History Podcast joining us today. And this is really exciting because I have been listening to their episodes ever since they first started releasing it. And I've been enjoying what they're bringing out, bringing forth on there. Plus I get to be a member of the troth with them. And that's also exciting times. Lauren is a broadcasting and podcasting veteran and spent her 20s doing talk radio. She has been a heathen since 2002 and a member of the Black Bear Kindred of Central Arkansas since its founding in 2003. She currently serves as the vice president of Arkansas Pagan Pride and the public relations director for the Troth. When she's not doing heathen stuff, she works in IT and spends time with her husband and dogs. Lucky them. Ben is the author of 12 translations and current publications director for the Troth. He's been studying Icelandic languages for over 10 years. He is a founding member of the Black Bear Kindred of Central Arkansas, married to his gorgeous wife, Mandy, and has a lively son who is born a Thorsman. In his free time, he's a college professor. Welcome, Lauren and Ben. Thank you.
1: Happy to be here.
0: I have had the pleasure of meeting both of you at Trothmoot and your lively son, and had a great time with that last year, and that was really exciting, so... Thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast. And I just got to say that I've been listening to Heathen History Podcast since you started. And I'm having a very good time listening to it and learning a lot, actually. So are we.
1: <laughs> we try to make it fun and try to make it educational without getting like too – I don't know. History is hard to convey and make it also enjoyable. So that's kind of our – Our shtick is we want you to learn, but we want you to actually want to listen to more episodes because it's not a big dry lecture on whatever the topic is this week.
2: Yeah, we do do our homework with these. Um, A lot of the uh, research that uh, I do has been coming out of the uh, third edition of Our Truth, which is one of the things I've been spending a lot of time on. Uh, but yeah, we certainly do want people to have fun with this as well. There's an awful lot of funny things that have happened in heathen history. Uh, no doubt about that.
1: And I think one of the really exciting things about it has been that, you know, you we have that. We're able to go in and actually, some of the times even we've been able to, like at TruthMeet last year, we were actually able to bring on Dinah Paxson and uh, Melody Grundy and talk about, their experiences with early heathenry in Berkeley and the Mm -hmm. early troth experiences. And, you know, for some things, we actually can get, you know, kind of living history. Uh, Others, you know, obviously, nobody's going to dig up a Red Mills and ask him questions, nor would anyone want to. Um, Mm -hmm. When you're a little too much that even Hitler's like, yeah, dude, no, you got a Mm -hmm. question.
2: (laughs) But this kind of started when in the course of my research, I was actually able to get through the magic of interlibrary loan, which I use an awful lot. In fact, I've uh, worn out three interlibrary loan librarians at my university in the past 10 years or so, uh, because I send them to get me all kinds of weird things, and I don't know what they think about it all, uh, but they were able to lend me a copy of the um, the um, first guidebook to the Odinist religion uh, by A. Rudd Mills. Uh, Mills was an Australian lawyer who got captivated with the idea of uh, creating an Odinist religion. Uh, Of course, the guy was also, you know, as this younger generation says, Nazi AF. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And there's a lot of, you know, weird stuff in there too because the the style of his religion was basically high church Anglicanism with the serial numbers filed off but I so- same, yeah we were able to get a copy of this or I was and I thought to myself you know this is too good not to share and I suggested to Lauren maybe we could do some you know a podcast or something like that. And the rest is kind of history. And she did most of the work in setting it up.
1: And I, I will admit, I've been kind of pestering Ben for a few years. So I used to host a, a little podcast called Heathen Talk. Uh And when that ended, um, I um the podcasting thing is kind of something I'm very passionate about. Um And when that ended, I was kind of looking for another opportunity and had developed a few things, but nothing really was working. And Ben it's kind of funny. It's really funny because the we have a working Dropbox folder essentially that we w- have outlines and sources in. And it started because Ben shared this giant thing of scanned in source folkish source materials, basically. The A Rudd Mills, the um different issues that he had gotten interlibrary loan of the Odinist, or that he had gotten different places. So it's it's been really interesting. Um the stuff I've, we've had to digest to, to do mm-hmm. this podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, a lot of times I say, we, we read this stuff and talk about it so you don't have to.
2: Right. There's a um, not entirely, but very close to complete collection of the very early issues of The Rune Stone, uh, which was the newsletter slash zine uh, put out by Steve McNallan uh, starting in the very early days, I think in 1972. And it's actually available on microfilm. So I was able to get the whole thing. I've actually read the very first edition of The Rune Stone, you know, MacNallan's first attempt ever uh, to go public with a, you know, heathen slash Ossetru organization. You know, I've read all of that stuff and it's it's kind of a trip. Um, spring
1: nineteen spring nineteen seventy two you could get a full year subscription for only two dollars
0: wow three dollars
1: in it, Canada.
2: mind you it was you produced, can't even
0: buy a comic book for three dollars these days
2: yeah mind you it was produced on this ancient technology uh it wasn't even uh ditto uh machines it wasn't even a spirit duplicator it was this thing called a mimeograph mm-hmm. and <laughs> Evidently, it was produced on a mimeograph machine that had actually been made back in the late Iron Age or something like that. Uh, It was almost impossible to read in places. But we did it so you don't have to. And, yeah, I think we – I may be one of very few people who have read almost every runestone issue from the very beginning all the way up till. Uh, McNallon first ran out of steam in uh, uh 1986 I think
1: <laughs> but, no, but I mean that's and we've you know like said we've read through those I mean we're I'm very fortunate to have Ben as kind of my partner in crime in this because Ben has really put forth a lot of effort to get so many primary sources for us um in these publications um all the and and not just the Rhinestone, but um Elsa Christensen's the odinist um. There is a lot of those as well. Um, It's just been really, it's been really fascinating. But yeah, the A. Rudd Mills was like, I have a friend to go back to that. I have a friend who is, um, went to Episcopalian seminary. And I sent him the, the uh, prayer book to get his opinion. And he said that it looked like someone took, the common book of prayer took out god and jesus inserted odin and thor and shook it real hard <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so that's our first episode and we mm-hmm. sing like we sing some of the hymns and that's pretty much what we do we we go in and we we take a subject we beat it to death with with our with humor and hopefully you walk away learning something
0: i i remember you singing all those hymns <laughs> i thought that was i was like they created a hymn book They really Uh created a (laughs) handbook. That's Uh that's something
1: else. (laughs) And what's great though, is how much that's resonated. So uh, we have a, a, there's a kindred about three hours away in Memphis that we're friends with. And I went up there for uh, an event last year and like half the kindred looks at me and goes,
2: Whoa. town."
1: which is how the First Anglican Church of Odin closed their hymns and prayers. We don't know if exactly like that, but I'd like to think it is.
2: (laughs) I love it. On a slightly more serious note, a lot of these primary sources for the history of modern heathenry, Ausatru, whatever you're calling it, are really, really hard to find. Uh, Mm A Mills published his books himself, and they never had a very large print run. You know, they were never distributed in the thousands by a major publisher or anything like that. Uh, there's maybe five copies in academic libraries in the entire United States uh, maybe not even that many. And then of course the Odinist and you know the runestone and you know maybe dozens of zines and journals in the 70s and 80s you know some of them affiliated with organizations and some of them independent. Um, you just can't find them these days. You know, there was a lot of, you know, early heavy lifting of the True slash heathen movement going on in journals like Boreas or On Wings of Eagles or Raven's Cry or Laid Stierna that, you know, have pretty much vanished. You know, if there's any copies left, they're probably gathering dust in somebody's attic or, you know, getting thrown out with spring cleaning or something like that. So, you know, I think it's important that we preserve as much of this as we can and, you know, pass it on to, you know, the coming generation because, you know, not all of it was very well done and not of it was not all of it was, you know, very good work, but there was an awful lot that was done back in those days that, you know, I think we're at risk of losing forever.
0: Well, that let me ask you this, uh, Ben and Lauren: Why do you think it is important for people to understand those those foundations those, of, of modern heathenry that started out of um, nationalism and and white supremacy or supremacy or those types of things? Why do you think that that's important? I mean, why would that fuel you fuel you both to take so much time out of your your schedules to create a podcast around it?
1: Oh, I think that it's important. First, we need to understand where we came from. Um, And that I think is number one, the most important thing. If we don't understand where we came from, one, we can't change. And two, we can't analyze critically what we do to try to root out those influences that may have been there from the seventies and earlier. And we just don't realize it. Like we don't, why we do, you know, it's, it's not unlike the old story about the family who always cuts their pot roast in half.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And uh, if I I will tell it very briefly, but the family always cuts their pot roast in half when they cook it on Sunday. And one day grandma comes in and says, why are you doing that? And, And the, Granddaughter says, well, that's how mom said you always did that. And she goes, well, it's because I didn't have a dish big enough for a whole pot roast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's the same thing, you know, why it's things like that we that and not even necessarily I, but other heathens might take in and say, OK, um, one of the things that I think is important to analyze and we have a show up coming on that is things like the nine noble virtues. Where did they come from? Why do we have these? And then in turn, what does that really mean to heathenry because they were influenced by racism, because they were influenced by nationalist ideas, not just nationalist ideas from the 70s or 60s, but nationalist ideas from the British Romantic and the Victorian era. You know, I think we can't critically analyze sources. We can't critically analyze our practices unless we understand where they came from.
2: Right. I'm actually working now on some background research for an upcoming episode on a Danish guy by the name of Wilhelm Grunbeck. And Grunbeck wrote this book, which was translated as The Culture of the Teutons. And Grunbeck was a very gifted writer and able to portray these, you know, thought worlds, these worlds of you know religion and spirituality very convincingly, as if he were doing it from the inside. And he's actually better known for his work on things like Indian spirituality and ancient Greek uh, religion and spirituality, things like that. An awful lot of modern heathenry uh, ultimately comes out of Grimbeck. I mean, that's where you get, you know, things like the, the gifting cycle and uh, luck versus unluck, and especially the opposition between Inangarth and Utgarth, you know, the distinction between us kind of people here in the center of the world And all of those other kinds of people out on the periphery who were dangerous and have to be excluded, you know, like Jotnar versus gods or, you know, things like that. And a lot of this gets passed around in the heathen community as, you know, the mindset of our ancient Teutonic ancestors. And it isn't necessarily so, it's the mindset of, Wilhelm Grünbeck who was a very smart man be it said and who isn't necessarily wrong about everything but you know he's not the only person out there trying to interpret the sagas he didn't you know get this stuff handed down on Mount Sinai or whatever the Scandinavian equivalent is uh, Mount Himmelnburg in Denmark which is about 500 feet high maybe <laughs> you know and we have a lot of things that have gotten built into the framework of heathenry as we practice it now and if we want to do them that's fine but it never hurts to ask ourselves the question of where did we get this is this really what we can get from the sagas was there really such a thing as an our forefathers mindset at all or did it vary from place to place and tribe to tribe and and person to person you know are we really getting into the mindset of our ancestors or are we parroting something by Grunbeck or Victor Rydberg or Hilda Roderick Ellis Davidson or something like that. that Eliade. Were,
1: were, oh my God. If I hear one more person parroting Eliade. Oh sorry. It's yeah. Or
2: Mircea Eliada, You know, are we building stuff into heathenry that's not really in the sources? And if so, shouldn't we at least ask ourselves, where does this really come from?
0: Mm-hmm. So that, that's kind of interesting that you bring it up that way. So, how would someone like our someone who's say either years into being a heathen or just starting out being a heathen or somewhere in between uh, because we're all on a spectrum somewhere with that S- so many of us we just hear the stuff we read books it gets copied from book to book to book nowadays mm-hmm. uh, and you know people just quote other other authors uh, how can we encourage or how, what's, what, what is some uh, advice that you think for someone to be like, have a healthy skepticism and look into this kind of stuff to be able to separate nationalism, fantasy, misunderstanding, information at the time? Because, hey, things change. I mean, we think mm-hmm. we have something and then 10 years later we find a new grave, right? <laughs> that has something completely different that turns everything we thought we knew into a whole different study and things. And then, what's still useful stuff? What are some things that you think both of you that are, are healthy ways to kind of have that skepticism and look into things?
1: I think number one is, is one is talking to other people. Um, And as heathens, and I will, I'm going to, I'm going to quote Ben here, but probably the one thing that Ben is known for in heathenry beyond anything else is Wagner's Law of Heathen Interaction, which if you're not familiar with, states that any discussion between two heathens will eventually end with, you're not the boss of me and you're doing it wrong. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> and i i think that is to our detriment i think that being able to talk to other people listen to other people's perspective even if you disagree with them so long as their perspective is grounded in something logical um obviously you know racism sexism that kind of stuff is not what i'm talking about i'm talking about theological differences um and being able to say okay i disagree with you i see your point and then Following back up with your research or whatever, you know, I will freely admit I'm, I've been a heathen since 2002. My practice has changed dramatically. Uh, My practice has changed dramatically in the past five years. I mean, that's just part of learning and growing and becoming mature in your, in your religious beliefs, I think is the willingness. You know, we don't have a, there isn't a heathen guidebook to how to do this, you know? there there's not a a heathen bible there's not an Ossipope. i don't Mm -hmm. care what certain people think um that they are but
0: (laughs) there's a lot who try to be don't there aren't there
1: oh lord we're in the we're in the midwest heathen area we know we've had several of them Mm -hmm. um most of them are not cool or charismatic enough to start the cult that they want but that's another story (laughs) um i think that a lot of it's being willing and being willing to admit that you're wrong um And also being willing to admit if people are doing something, especially, you know, I I talk about the hammer right. I the hammer right's not historical. I personally don't find any theological value in it, but there are kindreds that have been around since the nineties, the eighties, who do the hammer right. That's their tradition. It's meaningful to them because they've done it for 20, 30 years. Therefore, it's completely valid to them. And I'm not going to criticize them for that. Now, if a brand new heathen came to me about it, I'd be like, well, let me explain to you why. And then I go back and, you know, it's kind of like we did the two-part series about Gerald Gardner in the history of Wicca. I think if you're any kind of pagan, you need to understand that. Need to understand because you can't understand early heathenry. Without understanding where Wicca came from and the position of Wicca in society, especially pagan society, in the 70s and 80s.
2: -hmm. Right. I would, something you mentioned the hammer, right? Something that I see every so often, you know, when I dip a toe into social media, which I don't do that much of, is there are heathen groups that really, really, really don't like the eightfold wheel of the year you know, where you feast at the solstices, the equinoxes, and the cross-quarter days. That got borrowed into Ausatru circa 1979, about the time that Steve McNallan came back from his service in the army in Germany, uh, be it said as an army ranger, um, I disagree with the man on a lot of things but you know he has jumped out of perfectly good airplanes before I'll give him that when he got back to Berkeley all of a sudden this religion that he'd mostly been conducting privately or with very small groups or through his uh, journal/newsletter suddenly had to develop some structure there were enough people there that they started holding you know public rituals and things like that And he tended to pick up the wheel of the year because it was pretty much what was out there. You know, they needed to develop some kind of in-person structure. Here's Wicca. Here's the wheel of the year. It's European. Let's go with it. Now,
1: And keep in mind that at that point, the concept of Wicca being an ancient religion was still widespread. It was still pretty much seen as truth. It was still in the encyclopedia. And for those of you not old enough to remember the encyclopedia, that was pretty much like the word of God god when it came to things i mean i've done so many reports out of the encyclopedia mm-hmm. but you know if the encyclopedia says that it, it has to be true
2: yeah it was it was kind of like wikipedia but it was made out of paper and uh, uh, you couldn't and edit. no one
1: could edit it yeah
2: right anyway where i was going with that is that's one of the things that got kind of baked into our structure and it is almost certainly not the way that any you know actual pre-christian heathens Worshipped. I mean, for one thing, you know, climates and things like that tend to vary a lot. And as Kvildolf Gunderson once wrote, you know, if you're standing around in the spring equinox praising, you know, Ostara and the returning spring, and you're in Sweden uh, like he was, you're going to feel like a complete idiot and you're probably going to get frostbite and, you know, freeze your butt off. Religious practice actually varied quite a bit depending on where you were. And this makes sense if you're an agricultural society, you know, you're not going to hold your harvest home celebration until the harvest is actually home. And that might vary Mm -hmm. even in one place. It'll vary from year to year, depending on, you know, the vagaries of the, the weather that year. So where I guess I'm going with that is that that eightfold wheel of the year that's basically determined by the position of the sun in the sky doesn't seem to be the way that the pre-Christian heathens did things and how they did do things would have varied depending on where and when they were doing it. At the same time, you know, as with the Hammerite, there are heathen kindreds that have been doing this sort of thing for, you know, 40 years by now. And, you know, I have better things to do than going around and telling people that they're not worshiping at the right times you know whatever works you know I'm not the asa Pope I'm not the heathen police you know I figure if the gods don't like what you're doing they have ways of telling you you know they hardly need me to point out where you're going wrong yeah you know <laughs> I don't worry about it but I do think it's important that we do some thinking about when we worship, why we do it the way that we do, Uh, what did it ultimately mean as far as we can know, what did it mean to the people who did it in, you know, back in the ancient days, you know, why do we follow the traditions that, that we do, you know, what did it mean back then and what can it mean for us now? And then once you've done that thinking, if you want to keep the wheel of the year, that's fine, you know, I'm good. If you want to do deeper research into how you know such and such a tribe used to worship back in the day and base your practice on that, that's also fine. If you want to spend some time thinking about how you could adapt the spirit behind the whole thing to your own region and your own climate and your own crops – That is probably also just fine, but at least you're not doing things without taking a little time to reflect on on why, taking a little time to reflect on what it ultimately means and how it might tie into the greater picture of your relationship with the gods, the ancestors, and the land.
1: Because yeah, let me tell kinda, you what, there's there's nothing quite like doing a winter finding in shorts and tank tops, like we've done before when we tried to keep to a very strict like schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, because let me tell you what, it feels so much like winter when it's 89 degrees outside. Yay, Arkansas! Um, well,
0: yay, Southern California, <laughs> Lauren.
1: <laughs> Arkansas, is the when it comes to our climate, but and, and I think that you know, for me, as you know, I'm I'm the leader of our kindred. Uh, my official title is she who must be obeyed. Yes, I've I'm, for sure. I'm, yes I'm a benevolent dictator. Um, <laughs> hey, I've invoked my power twice, and one of them Ben got a wife out of. So, oh,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you know, I I do change. You know, we we did do kind of the eightfold year when we started seventeen years ago, um, but now you know we kind of change and evolve, and you know, we, you, I think you have to be willing to accept new evidence if you're presented with new evidence you you mm-hmm. analyze it and then see how you can integrate it in like i'm at a point now where i'm trying to come up with like a, a ritual calendar that kind of reflects more of where we've moved as a kindred versus where we were five years ago right? yeah and if kind
0: of interests me how uh, even a lot of um, modern asatru heathens uh, who are trying to reconstruct or reclaim however one wants to read it or, or say it, and that, but um, an ancient form of practice. But they're trying to – it seems to me like they're trying to create some universal practice that kind of like was all over all Germanic lands from southern Germany, Bavaria, all the way up to the furthest north of Norway. And it just kind of seems like they just kind of renamed some of the, the, the wheel of the year type stuff to Sigur Bloat or this bloat or that – but they're still trying to keep those things at a certain time. And I, I, I've i always kind of felt like it was always nice to try to try to adapt it to where I am and what's meaningful at the time. I, I live in Southern California. We don't have a winter. Um, we do, but it's not like winter everyone else knows. I mean, it gets down to like 45 degrees at the coldest at, at most times. And um, otherwise, we're like in 70s in the wintertime and hundreds in the summer. Uh, our winter is more like the summertime because nothing really grows well natively it all goes dormant so trying to get people to understand some of those things and break away from those forced traditions is sometimes hard how how, do, how would you recommend feeling free enough to kind of break away from all that like you have lauren and your or and ben and your kindred
1: get old <laughs> <laughs> I, I- I think a a lot of it comes down to time, maturity, and experience. Um, I'm a proponent of regional heathenry, whereas basically, you know, I am a big worldview pusher, I'll admit. I think that you should learn, figure out, and understand, I'm really big on the why. Why did they do this? Why was this important? Because if you figure out the why then you can it make it applicable. So for instance, I guarantee you that there is no record anywhere of a hurricane bloat to Thor. Uh (laughs) But it's something that happens if you're a kindred in New Orleans, Louisiana, or someone whose family lives down there. Um, You have these bloats because you need protection. You need Thor's blessing and you're extrapolating. Okay. This is what they did. This is why they did it. This was their purpose. Okay, how can I extrapolate that to my situation? Um, for us, that's creating our own holidays. You know, we have some holidays we celebrate here that are not heathen holidays, but they're kindred holidays. Um, but it's a lot of experience, time, and trying things. And some believe me, my rituals are a big freaking experiment most of the time. I try something, it works great, it doesn't work, cool, we won't do that again. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, trying to make everyone uh, sing. That didn't work very well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think also going to other kindreds too and visiting other groups and seeing what they're doing helps as well. But
2: yeah, also true likes to call itself the religion with homework, but, you know, and some of that is necessary. I'm not saying for a moment we should stop reading the Eddas or something like that. You know, that's one of the things that I think You know, keeps us grounded, you know, and it is important to know the past and know what the ancestors and the forebears were doing and all of that. But at the same time, in addition to being the religion with homework, I think you've got to be the religion with laboratory sections as well. That, you know, it's important to keep trying things, thinking about why they work or don't work. And the ultimate goal is not to do bloats exactly as Agil Scala Grimson would have done them i feel like it's to bring yourself into right relationships with the gods the land the land spirits the ancestors and the community of flesh and blood people and ultimately i think the success or failure of what you do depends on depends on that you know not whether you're doing it exactly like Egil Scala grimson would have because, you know, the dude is dead. But are you doing it in a way that builds your spiritual community, you know, with the whites and the gods and everybody else and the very real human community uh, that that you have that we're all a part of? And I wanted to add this. um, I've come across a paper by a guy named Stefan Brink, and what he's done is looked at Scandinavian place names that can be derived as coming from a deity name. They're what he calls theophoric names, names that carry a god's name. And when you look at the pattern of this, you find some things like there's a bunch of place names that come from the name of the god Tyr, Uh, probably the best known is Tissu, a... uh, big archaeological site in Denmark whose name means Tears Island. Outside of Denmark, as far as we can tell, almost nobody had heard of Tear, or at least didn't think he was important to name an island or a grove or a temple or anything like that after him. Uh, Frey names are all centered around central Sweden and also a bit close to where Oslo is now. Uh, Odin is kind of all over the map in more ways than one, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Or Thor is fairly universal, but even there, there's some regions of uh, inland Norway, for example, where you know there aren't any place names dedicated to him. Um, Ul uh, seems to have been known in Norway, but not in Denmark. Uh, Icelanders were pretty big on Thor and Frey, but didn't name anything after Odin, and so on. And the point of all this is, Snorri Sturluson seems to have taken a bunch of old poems and traditions and kind of tried to smooth them out into, you know, one story and one pantheon. But as far as the place names can show you, even in the Viking Age, religion differed from place to place, even among matters like who's the most important god. You know, there was not a single, you know, Viking Age religion, even in Scandinavia, much less was there ever a single United Germanic religion. You know, the idea that there's such a thing as a United Germanic religion is basically, you know, Jakob Grimm's Idea back in the 1830s, and so we shouldn't expect now that we're going to have uniformity in practice. It's okay to vary things based on where you are because that's the way it was back. Uh, that's the way it was back in the day. Practices and beliefs and myths—they uh, were different depending on where you were, and it's okay yeah, yeah. if we do I, this now. But let's think about how we're going to do it.
0: Yeah, and they also. Were influenced by people they traded with, people they lived next door to, thinking like, "Hey, that's a cool thing. Let me see how you do that, and if it works for me, I might, I might just add that mm-hmm. to my practice."
1: Right, and I think that that we have a one of the issues that um, we see is there is kind of this weird dichotomy in heathenry where people come in and they want you know, and you know, most religions love it or hate it have a pretty easily digestible, like readers digest condensed version of this is what you do. Uh And that's just not there for heathenry. And so people try very hard to create that. That's what you see with things like, you know, the nine noble virtues, for instance. Um, It's just not, there's just no simple digestible, easy to operate owner's manual to heathenry um and that's once again why i always push towards other people because i mean i'll be honest i am the heathen i am because i share a kindred with ben and i've learned so much from him and his studies you know um the late rod landreth was a huge influence on me and who i am as a heathen mm-hmm. um all Hail these rod. people that i Dale rod oh, i miss that man <laughs> so much um all these people that i've interacted with for good or bad um you know have influenced who i am as a heathen because i've seen one of two things either a way that works for other people that i can try or horrible mistakes people have made that i don't repeat um and those are both very helpful for all of it and i think that you know a lot of people you know if you have a chance go to events go visit other kindreds um I mean, we've driven, I've driven all over the Midwest at this point. And if you're an older heathen, take that chance to mentor new heathens. Yeah, Um, That's partially what I've been doing with another kindred is I've been driving two and a half, three hours to their rituals to help them and kind of mentor this new kindred and get it going.
2: Um, Lauren, you, you remember the time we drove back from central Texas in a snowstorm? After hanging out with uh it was a Texas Harrow Moot back in what was it, 05, something like that.
1: Oh yeah, that was the that was the uh that was the event that had the symbol that was still going at breakfast.
2: Yeah, that was the one where we started rewriting I Wanna Be Sedated by the Ramones, you remember? Your stumble last 24 hours
1: 24 a day. day. I, I wanna I be sedated. <laughs> yeah. Um the actual thing, we've been in a, at this point, we've been in a kindred together for 17 years we've done a lot of weird stuff uh yes, ben i driven back in snowstorms and driven all over but i think that that's important it's important to and i'll be honest don't i'm gonna say this and i get flack for it every time i say it don't let the internet become your heathenry
0: mm-hmm. i agree that's a good that's good
1: because i'll be honest we are not ourselves when we're on social media or reddit or whatever but uh, you can't
0: let podcasts be part of your heathenry right
1: that's right because but i mean you know hey but at the same time you could do it face to face because we do live shows at different events
0: i know i saw your mm-hmm. last live show at troth mood and i saw the video one that you did a couple weeks ago which was awesome
1: and we're
2: actually what was it? I, don't, I don't remember very much about it To be honest.
0: <laughs> i'm sure you don't ben
1: it <laughs> was pretty ben cool was Drinking and I was on pain pills. It was great. I just, just and that's like a, a troth coming up, uh, which is gonna be virtual this year. Uh we have I can't announce that it. it's not all in cement, but uh let's just say that if everything goes to plan, we're gonna have a really big interview for that live show at mute. Um, and that's that's the thing. You you come in, you interact with people, you can ask questions. I don't know, I think that's important. I think it's I like important. It too. Yeah, I think it's important to get involved with, you know, find like-minded people, ask questions, be annoying. Uh, I am, it works. Um,
2: you know, <laughs> and yeah, I, you know be,
1: be willing to,
2: you know, be eager to test yourself among the folk when you're sitting outside on the firewood pile. So that's a very rough paraphrase of something in the Havamal. but you know it talks all about you know go travel and you know yeah. go be in and among people and you know know when to talk and what to say and when to shut up and know when to hold them and know when to fold them and all that yeah. and, and i um, think
1: and it's it is and uh, you know it's it's definitely worth it you know i my you know who i am as a heathen I always kind of say that if you're not slightly embarrassed about the heathenry you were practicing five years ago, you may not be examining yourself closely enough. (laughs) Just Mm -hmm. a little bit, like not like full on cringe, but like, oh god, why did I really do that? Um, Did I really do that? Did I really? And I think that that's that's important. It's important to, and that's to kind of go back to the podcast. That's why I think learning history is so important because it gives you another level and another layer to examine things, books. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to pick a little bit on someone that I do admire to the Instagram, and She knows that, but Diana Paxson's um, book on also true for the time. It was great, but it's over a decade old. And some of the resources in it are not great. Um, but if you were to pick that up and knowing who she is and, be brand new and read it and see, oh, well, here's a link to the uh, AFA. Let me go check them out. And then that leads you down a whole dark path. We don't want yeah. you on, you know, it's, but if you're know dark- the history and can critically examine it, mm-hmm. you know, you can say, oh, well, this was, this was 10 years ago. Things were different then. Whereas now it's a, it's a different time and situation.
0: Yeah, Here's a question for you. So you're on 15 episodes published mm-hmm. uh, podcast. Um- congratulations. That's a lot. Thank you. <laughs> and and I'm sure you have many more in the can or at least on paper or in your heads as to what you're going to do. What's something that has surprised each of you when you actually started getting into some of the dark nooks and crannies of the history of the last hundred years or maybe even the last 40 to 50 years of heathenry? What's something that you're just like, oh my God, I can't believe that that, I, I can't believe that. Is there is there anything like that or or what would be something?
2: I get scared sometimes paralleling German history beginning about 1870 with U.S. history beginning about 1950 because you have, okay, you've got a unified country that's just won a great military victory. You know, technology is going up like a, you know, is is going like gangbusters. There's all kinds of new inventions. Industrial production is taking off like a rocket. And then there's this, you know, kind of counter movement for people who've seen all of that and decided that it's ultimately not what they want and it's not best for their country. So you get this back to nature movement with people who are into everything from Hinduism to astrology to, you know, vegetarianism and, and, oh gods the nudism. Like, you know, half of Germany was running around with no clothes on. Okay, I may be exaggerating, but I'm not entirely wrong. You know, this is actually when a lot of what would become the American counterculture in the 1960s was actually born. There were these German... They didn't call them hippies. They were the nature men, the natural mention, uh, some of whom emigrated uh, emigrated to the United States and practiced this sort of thing as far back as the the 1910s and 1920s. So you have that, and then you have a conservative counterreaction to that, that actually borrows some of these ideas about Buddhism and nudism and all of the other fun things. But starts putting them in uh, the service of this very nationalistic, ethnocentric, you know, Germany rules, everyone else rules uh, Mm -hmm. ideology that you've got and, you know, turns it into this way of regenerating the German people, you know, into this, you know, truly great nation. It stops becoming in the service of the individual and starts becoming in the service of, well, the Volk, and you know, it kind of builds on from there, and that's not Nazism itself, but that's ultimately the wave that the Nazis were able to surf so well. Is the surge of romantic, ultra-conservative nationalism uh, growing out at this time, and I see a hell of a lot of parallels uh, between that time, between about 1870 and about 1933, in German history. And the history of our own fair republic, and I hope we manage to bring it to a different ending from the way that Germany did. Maybe that's something we need to learn from history before we repeat it by mistake. Interesting. What? Yeah, you, the Germans invented the hippies. The hippies are a product of German engineering, <laughs> and that's that would a- be
1: the episode that Ben and I got drunk and did. Uh, that's actually yeah. uh, that's actually the live show we did. That's on our Facebook page, and by the time this airs, will be episode sixteen. Um, All right. That'll be fun to listen to again.
2: Yeah, I have faint memories of singing that song uh, by a guy named uh, Eden Abes, who was a follower of one of these German nature men, these proto hippies who'd moved out to California. And it ended up becoming Nat King Cole's first chart hit in 1948. Um, I think I actually might have sung it. Um, You did. Yeah. Nature Boy. (laughs) There was a boy. A very strange, enchanted boy. Yeah, that's yeah. He's actually talking about one of these, you know, German Natural mention who had come to Southern California and was living out in the desert.
1: And not, you know, not to be confused with the other Nature Boy that is Ric Flair, because some of us grew up in the South and with redneck parents. Oh, uh, wait, Wrestling was nature boy. Yeah. Okay. All right, that was one of his first monikers. Um, yeah, so for me, um, I'm going to go back to our live episode we did um, with Diana Paxson talking about heathenry in the, in the 80s in Berkeley. Um, some of that stuff just really kind of shocked me in a good way. I thought it was kind of funny that basically, you know, she's talking about having ritual where you would have the guys in full Nazi regalia, the elderly Norwegian men, some hippies, and you know, some military people, all standing in ritual together. And for that moment, they all kind of came together. And then you could scare the racists off by telling them there's going to be an orgy afterwards. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that to me is just. Oh my God. Um, And also the the ancient aliens uh, that there were. You know, basically they had a ritual one time, and then after the ritual, someone did a slideshow and talked about the types of aliens. Um, it just it cracks me up, um, and I think that that is important. But I'll be honest; I was a little naive going into this. I didn't know how heavily the history of our religion was influenced by um, racism and nationalism. Um, in my mind, I had, in my mind, I guess I had it as this was something they, the, the racist co-opted from us when the actual answer is more the inclusive people kind of took what the racist did and said, Hey, we can do it better and cooler and correctly. Yeah. So you know i i think that was the biggest wake up call for me was definitely that this has always had a a racist element to it um and
2: and it's it's not always it's not always overt you know certainly most heathen very few heathens that i've met actually are openly racist in the sense of sitting around over horns of mead complaining about how those people are ruining america and all of that but once you know what to look for in the history of ideas, you know you can trace some unsavory ideas coming out of you know this ethno-nationalism that was so prevalent in Germany, especially after World War One, and draw some lines with what people still do today. Um, and yeah, it's. One of the places where a good deal of critical thinking and some historical study would do everybody a world of good, because you have these ideas that are being presented as, you know, the ancient thought of our distant ancestors, when in fact, they are something that you know, some disaffected German academic pulled out of his butt circa 1915. Mm-hmm. What are some
0: ways that people who come to that realization, so Lauren was just like, I'm surprised at this. And so some people might think, well, I don't want to practice something that's based in Nazi racism and Nazi origins. How can we come to terms with that and move beyond that to capture what we can and create this inclusive and uh, more reflective of our society type of heathenry much like our ancestors re- their their practices reflected their their societies as well and how do we overcome that how like how do we come to terms how do we overcome that oh my god i don't want to practice something that that the racist started you know what i mean mm-hmm.
1: but, okay so funny story my mother-in-law is one of the biggest fans of our podcast my mother-in-law is a christian But she she listens. She's very supportive and I greatly appreciate it. But she asked me that um, I was over at her house and she's like, I don't understand why you believe this if this is just a bunch of racists. And the fact of the matter is, if you go look at the the theology, the liturgy, whatever, of a lot of these race, racist groups, I'm not going to be nice. Um, They're racists.
0: Please don't be nice.
1: Yeah, they have not grown There's zero growth in that theology. There's zero growth in that practice and praxis. It is just more of the same. It is, it's just, it's stuck in 1970 or 1980. And I think that we have evolved. Those of us who practice heathenry, and I, I do try to differentiate and try to use heathenry as the general word because it's one, it's more inclusive, but two, You know, those of us who put forth the effort to learn and change and grow, it's almost like we've developed two different religions that share some common God names. Um, With heathens being those of us who kind of have grown and changed and evolved, whether that be in kind of a practical setting or a research setting, regardless, there's a willingness to grow, change, and evolve. There are groups out there who support this, Um, be it, you know. Kindreds to the troth, um, other national and international organizations, um, who support this continual growth and learning. And if you look at, if you, uh, I'll be honest, you look at the books that and the stuff that Steve McNallan put out, I can't tell a huge theological difference between Steve McNallan 1993, Steve McNallan 2015, except for he started saying the quiet part out loud.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Heck, his, um, what was it, 81? He published this essay in the Rune Stone, and it's gotten reprinted all over the place. It's available on the net for free on this idea he had called metagenetics, which is his honestly not very good attempt to put a scientific-sounding foundation under the idea that you know the right religion for a person is determined by that person's ethnicity and by nothing else. And he'd actually done some reading and listed some books that were out in, you know, circa 1978. When he came back and talked about it in this book he published in 2015, I think, his book called Ausitru, he's still pushing metagenetics and he's still recommending the same sources. You know, the scientific sources that he cites are all dated 1978, 1980 and things like that. And he doesn't seem to be aware that... You know the science of human genetics and its relationship to human behavior has actually moved by leaps and bounds in the intervening forty-some years. Um, he's basically been restating the same idea without a great deal of development from nineteen eighty-two uh, to uh, to now. And I agree that he's just gotten a little bit louder about some of the things that were, you know, more subtextual at the time. But something I wanted to add to that is. One of the ways that you can keep growing is paradoxically to keep going back to the past. And by that, I mean, you know, we will always need geeks like me. He can go do deep dives into the Eddas and sagas, you know, we'll all and we'll always need people who might not do quite as much scholarship, but who who read them and learn from them. You know, I don't think we're ever going to evolve to such a point where we don't need them at all. And sometimes we can use them to correct some of the biases that have crept in. I mentioned Wilhelm uh, Grunbeck, who, in his book Culture of the Teutons, has this very sharp division between the Inengarth, you know, us kind of people, our sort of people and the Utgarv, you know, the realm beyond the boundaries, you know, the realm of outlaws and jotnar and monsters, uh the realm of bad luck, you know, the realm where the unlucky end up getting sent, you know, surrounding the innigarv and pressing in on it from all sides and you know, someday going to break through. You know, that's a view that's very familiar if you know, you know, kind of the standard party line on the uh, the jotnar versus the gods You know, these external hostile forces that are someday going to break in and stage Ragnarok and all of that. And yet, if you go back to the sources originally and you look at them, and you look at not just sources for the Jotnar, but some of the legendary sagas that seem to borrow a lot of the Jotnar traits from the Salmi, the, you know, far northern, the people that used to be called Laps, although that's considered insulting these days. One of the things you realize is that the Norse people did have this concept of innengarv and utgarv, but the relationship is not nearly exclusive the way that Grunbeck said. The innengarv and the utgarv need each other. There has to be exchange. You know, the gods go to the giant world to seek, you know, powerful artifacts or for that matter, you know, wives and things like that. And, you know, if that relationship becomes unbalanced, you know, if anything, it's the gods' fault, not the giants. And this mirrors the kind of relationship that the Norse would have had with other ethnic groups. Yeah, they were different. Yeah, they might have been weird. Yeah, hostility sometimes broke out. But, you know, the people of the Inungarth needed what the Utgarth could do. You know, they needed things from them, they traded with them. And that's a much more inclusive vision than Grunbeck's old idea of, you know, the Innengarth and the Utgarth being, you know, eternally opposed to each other. You know, it really is inclusive. It does give you a way to think about dealing with people who are not like you, you know, at all. It opens up ways to think about dealing with them and you know from a standpoint of equality and mutual benefit and things like that. And I think it's better supported by the lore than Grunbeck's conclusion. you know I, I think that's actually a more authentic way of looking at things than you would get if all you read was, some bloggers, third hand regurgitation of Grundbeck's culture of the Teutons. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, sometimes to make progress, you have to go back.
0: Good ideas and good points. And I hope that a lot of people will will do that. Expand, read, mm-hmm. learn, ask people questions.
1: And also experience. We we talk so much about the religion with homework. I'll be honest with you, I didn't really, like a lot of, because of the way things are couched in a lot of the lore, it's couched in terms that a person of that era would understand. There are so many things I didn't understand about the metaphors for fate and weird until I learned how to use a drop spindle mm-hmm. or learned how to weave. Um, those kind of things make, I think, a huge difference in experiencing um, and doing and learning. Yeah,
0: I think so, too.
1: But most of all, you really should just listen to our podcast. Because right, yeah. We, we we will try to give you as much as we can. the unvarnished may not be the right word, but uh, we, we have sources. They're in our show notes. Like, we and, always and, got our sources. So.
0: And Ben shows them to us all the time. Yes,
1: he does. Oh, yeah. Hold <laughs> them right. up to the mic.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> Which, I'm uh, glad I, do for
2: this. I, re- I really do have those sources in there. I, I lugged a whole stack of back issues of um, Raven Banner. Uh, the uh, Odenic rights newsletter from the 1970s. And I lugged them all the way to the library. I had them at my elbow.
1: Yeah. We show up with backpacks. Like There's like a rolling bag of equipment. Ben's got backpacks and boxes full of books. It's, it's really interesting and I will admit it can get a little awkward cuz we we so our public library has a podcasting studio which is great until we're like deep into talking about the odenic right and racism and nazis and there's a bunch of kids watching us through the window and then it just gets <laughs> weird and awkward <laughs> real quick <laughs> uh,
0: that that that's probably a side i uh, kind of funny i I thought it was really fascinating that you do have a, a recording studio at your public library, but now to find out it also has a window like a re- recording studio did in the old radio days, that's even mm. more funny. <laughs> well, what they did is
1: they took a they took like a conference room and turned it into um a multimedia studio. So it's got green screens, it's got the setup for pot, you know, they have microphones there, but mine are better. So I bring mine. Um they've got like uh Computers in there that can do video and audio editing. They have light boxes. I mean, it's a whole thing. It's uh there's a video on our if you go to our Facebook page, uh, there's a couple of videos there that I've taken of us in the studio. Um And Laura, where we, what is your
0: Facebook page for our listeners? I'll put it in the show notes as well, but go ahead and mention it. Uh
1: it's Facebook.com forward slash Heathen History, or you can just go to heathenhistory.com and that's got all our links because I think that's right, but <laughs> I'm not a hundred percent because I uh good. I kind of get a little, but you know, Facebook. We've got a YouTube channel now where we're we got requested to put our videos up on YouTube or our audio. So I made some nice little audiograms, and uh, it's uh, you know, trying to do my best to get good content out there. Because trust me when I say, you go search for like heathen podcasts, and for every good podcast like yours, there's ten to fifteen that are either really bad or like just racist <laughs> so much racist stuff i mean just it's a little painful yeah that's
0: why i started this was because i when after after your podcast went off the air i didn't have anything really to listen to that i could find and i thought well i'll just start my own and just start talking i just want to talk to people and we, we just talk about stuff like this that's that, that's that's the whole thing that i want to do with it is just bring voices out bring ideas out and have fun stuff like this. And before we get too far away from it, I, w- I just want to say that things like your library having that uh, s- uh, audio-visual studio, that's why we need to support our local libraries. Oh, yeah. I love right. my library. <laughs> you know, one <laughs> yeah. of the
1: reasons that we, re- I re- we record there is to support them so that they keep, you know, having podcasting studios and that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Public libraries do so much more than books these days.
1: Oh, our public library here, I, I will brag for a minute. Um, they're the forefront of feeding. You know, I, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, we have a very high power view right here. Um, and our local libraries have been the like key and the forefront to feeding all these children who depend on the school lunch programs um you know they're the ones that have taken up that banner to do the work and they're the ones that have found creative ways to get internet access to kids to do their school i mean it's the same and a different library we have just opened a maker space with right before the the lockdown happened we are so lucky here
0: yeah (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and interlibrary loan. If your library doesn't have your book, you might get it through ILL. Mm-hmm.
1: I got a, I got a really obscure documentary on um, a fight between a pagan bookstore and the Baptist churches in Jonesboro, Arkansas, through interlibrary loan.
2: <laughs> oh, was, this, cool. was, this the, was this the March on Fort God?
1: Yes, I got a copy of it. And if this thing ever ends, we're supposed to be doing a showing of it. Uh, to raise money for Arkansas Pagan Pride, um, but yeah, it's uh actually the first incorporated pagan church in Arkansas. It's it's a look up Terry Riley and march on Fort God if you're want to read up on this. It's fascinating. This guy tried to start a pagan bookstore right before the West Memphis Three started in the area where they had the trial in the nineties.
2: And this went over like a pregnant high jumper.
1: Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I grew up. So, uh, yeah, um. That's where I grew up in that area with all this going on. And I still ended up a pagan somehow. Not really sure. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, what projects do each of you have kind of on the horizon, short term, that you could tell us about?
1: Well, oh,
2: the really big thing I've been working on for a year and a half.
0: Really, is- Ben? You're working on something really big for a year and a half? Just yeah. one thing? Or like one of multiple? I mean,
2: no, <laughs> I'm this is pretty much this is pretty much one thing this has been taking up uh, pretty much all of my brain's spare processing power such as it is and that is preparing the third edition of our truth and it's gotten so large that you know, the, the first edition came out at the end of 1993, and it was one book of about 700 pages. The second edition came out in, um, what, 06 and 07, and we had to split that into two. The third edition's got to be more than two. Wow. And so, yeah, the first volume of what's probably going to be at least three uh, is still on track to come out in about two months. Mm-hmm. But the research for that You know, a lot of the research I did for that has ended up in the Heathen History podcast. Um, You know, if you're going to do the work, you might as well get credited for it at least twice. But this is going to have, you know, we have so many more illustrations because, you know, the major Scandinavian museums all make images of artifacts Uh, freely available under various creative commons licenses. And so this thing is going to have pictures of all of those, you know, golden goodies that get talked about a lot, but now we can illustrate them directly. And I've been tracking those down and I've been, you know, cleaning up some spots that are now, you know, outdated and, you know, freshening up the research. Uh, there's whole sections in there that are completely new. There's a lot more about the Nazis, not because I like them, but because I feel like it's important to know where some of the stuff ultimately comes from. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more on general general cultural history. Uh, you get to learn about uh, the inventor of baking powder, for example. Oh, cool. <laughs> if if you're curious, the inventor of baking powder made an enormous amount of money Uh, His name was Eben Horsford. He was a chemistry professor at Harvard. And he made so much money, he didn't know what to do with it. And when people have that kind of money, usually they get ideas as to what to do with it. And he got obsessed with the idea that the Norse had visited uh, North America. And he read the Vinland sagas and came to the conclusion that what was now Boston, had been the center of this great Viking-era empire called Norumbega, uh, which had mysteriously disappeared just before the English started showing up. Um, okay. and he, he spent his money putting plaques on everything that he thought had been a, a Viking settlement, and most of them are just, you know, rocks. You know, I, I, it seems like he, he put Leif Erickson's house just happened to be where he lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, oddly enough. So, never right. underestimate the power of eccentric people with ridiculous amounts of money. <laughs> so, yeah, that's one well, of the things that's going to go in there because it actually. Aside from being a funny story about an eccentric guy who was too rich for his own good, you know, it feeds into, you know, looking at 19th century American attitudes about the the Vikings and the Norse. And that unfortunately ties in with 19th century American attitudes about, you know, what ethnic group is supposed to be top of the heap. You know, mm-hmm. hint, it's the Anglo-Saxon and... Anglo-Saxon people and not all of these, you know, Irish and Italian and Jewish people that are migrating in. Um, So, yeah, it's all part of the, you know, it's all part of the grand story. It's all part of the enormous heritage of ideas that goes back to the Stone Age that we can all draw on. And it's all going to be put within you know, between two covers as completely as I can manage it. And that is finally looking like it's going to come to an end. And then I can start working on the volume about the gods. And hopefully sometime before I drop dead of exhaustion, I'll be able to get all of this out. That'd be great. Mm
0: -hmm. And you have recently put out a couple of cool things. You put out a translation of a new saga and you made available for free some activities for Coloring and other types of things for children. Can tell us about those two
2: things? Well and how they're available. Yeah, okay. As soon as we went on lockdown, you know, I've got a very active kid, you know, who, you know, can't go to go to school now and you know, needs things to occupy his time and you know, if left to his own devices, he play Roblox for twenty six hours a day, but you know, you can't only do that. And I figured there must be a lot more people who are in the same boat. So I started just by pulling together some clip art that I had from old projects and, you know, cleaning it up and modifying it and making it into some coloring sheets. And I think we're currently up to 28 different coloring and also activity sheets, you know, teaching kids how to, you know, uh, dye cloth and string using uh, yellow onion skins. Nice. Uh, You know, talking about constellations uh, that the the Vikings would have known or, you know, talking about herbs that they would have known and all done safely so that, you know, not encouraging the kids to go out and eat random wild plants because that's kind of a non-starter. Very quickly. There's a word find and a maze and things like that but it's just all things that kids can do at home that hopefully will be fun no you know regardless of whether the family's heathen or not uh but that also might teach just a little bit about the the cultural background i'm not hitting people really hard you know this is not bible school type coloring activities Oh, I'm just trying to come up with things that are fun and from which they might actually learn just a little bit. And that's all available for free uh, from the uh, uh, the Troth's site on lulu.com. And if you just search for, you know, heathen kids activity pack, um, uh, that's where you can find that.
1: It's also on the Heathen History Facebook page. There's a mm-hmm. link because uh, we posted about it. Um, yep. And I'll put
0: links in the... Uh... In the notes as well, so we'll get we'll get folks to be able to get to that. That's awesome.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's not a you know it's it's not a particularly deep scholarly dive. It was just my attempt to put together some stuff that people might find was fun. And it's currently only available as a PDF. You have to print it out yourself. Um, and I made that decision because uh, currently uh, book shipments are being delayed because Lulu's having difficulty getting paper supplies and things like that. You know because you know, because of the the mess that we're in at the moment. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's up there and it doesn't cost a thing. And, you know, if you don't like it, we'll give you double what you paid for it.
0: (laughs) That's great. Thanks for that. That's that's really great. I'm sure a lot of people will appreciate that. And the kids will have kids and of all ages will have
1: fun participating Mm -hmm. with it.
0: You don't have to be under a certain age to do that, right? Um no, there's, you know, no age limits there. Absolutely. Hey, adult
1: coloring books are a big business apparently. So.
0: Yes, they are. Lauren, what activities do you have on the horizon that that uh, you're working on?
1: So, first of all, I work in public health. So, most of my activities of the past 7 weeks have been in the work variety, so I don't have a ton of stuff coming up because of that. Uh uh just because I work and then usually I I do my other stuff. I, I, uh, I'm working on a rune quilt right now that was supposed to be for the Trothmoot raffle, but that's not going to happen this year. So next year, actually, it's probably going to go to Midwest Wintermoot this year, and then I'll do something else for Trothmoot next year. Um, but uh, Trothmoot, I am on the planning committee. Um, it will be online this year. So open to everyone. You don't have to be a Troth member. We welcome everyone to come. We're going to have lots of great presentations and... Um, We're trying to get away so that if you come to Trothmoot, you might get access to the first volume of our troth version 3 a little bit early. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Yep. I I really, beyond that, I do podcast stuff, I work, and I I do crafty things. That's kind of my thing. Um, We do have, coming up, and I will just tease this here, uh, last year, Ben and I were interviewed by a major national podcast that's gotten big press so one of the podcasts that frequently hits like the front page of iTunes um and uh we will be I don't have a date yet of when it is so I don't want to say I don't want to count my chickens but uh hopefully in the next few hopefully by the time this comes out we will be close to or have already aired an interview about heathenry and racism and heathenry and the history of it on a you know one of those great big podcasts um that,
2: were, so, that was so fun uh, to do because yeah, thanks to technical glitches, we only had one pair of headphones between us. Okay. So Lauren would talk for a while, and I couldn't hear what she was being asked. And then she'd pass me the headphones, and I would talk for a while, and Lauren couldn't hear what was going on. So we're, we're actually going to be able to find out what, what we were talking about in the first place for the first time. That's, but yeah, that's hilarious.
1: Beyond that, like I said, getting ready for Trust Transmute 2021, mm-hmm. Memphis, Tennessee – I'm just gonna go ahead and promote that now because I'm really excited because it's literally like two and a half hours away. Um, and also, you know, I I do write sporadically at feministheathen.com where I talk about kind of the intersection of feminism and heathenry, and also just honestly, that keeps me busy But <laughs> most of its work right now. I'm this whole situation that we're in has been very trying for. Yeah, you know, and I'm not even a frontline healthcare worker. I'm like fifth in line. Um, but even that, you know, the people who work in public health are epidemiologists, are um, logistics people, uh, people from the Corps of Engineers, the National Guard. There's so many people that we don't necessarily think about who really have been putting in so many hours, um, and I'm one of them. <laughs> and so
2: you, you actually that- got to work in a bunker, right?
1: I do. I, I I am actually on call this weekend. In fact, um, to go work in the bunker because we have, you know, in K- a lot of states and agencies have these like have these uh, contained areas set up because not only is it meant for this kind of thing, but if there were some sort of attack, you know, basically you have bomb shelters that these things are all built out of because uh, they were all built in the fifties and sixties. So, um, but yeah, I mean, pretty much, I just I work and. I do a lot of crafty stuff. I'm not, Ben is the writer in our kindred. I am, I like to, to say I'm the, uh, I'm the organizer. I'm the one that makes sure everything gets done and things get mm-hmm. set up and places get reserved. Um, and I, I like to talk about that sometimes with people because there's a lot of people like, Oh, well, you know, I'm not, I don't have this gift of writing or this, that, and the other. I'm like, listen, for every writer, and Ben, I love you. And, you know, I'm saying this, but for every Ben, there has to be a Lauren that can remember to make reservations so that Ben can spend his time writing yes. and getting things ready.
0: That's right. Absolutely. And, I'm, Absolutely. and I'm grateful for it.
1: And that's why we've been such a good kindred for so long.
0: That's You know, when people find the things that they're best at, and then we can all make a good a good team effort. That's what it works on. That's the best way.
1: And I really think that's important. And I just want to say this year as we're coming out of this also support your local pagan pride. Um, I'm on the board of directors for Arkansas. We're going to need you more than ever this year. Yes. Um, we still haven't figured out when we're going to set our date and we normally have had a date set for months now. Um, and a lot of events have already been canceled. So just support your local pagan pride, support your local pagan shops. Um, remember that heathenry is a community and we'll all get through this together.
0: We will. We will. So how will people be able to find you? Where, where are you, where are you to be found? We already know you're on Facebook. Are you on Twitter, Instagram?
1: We're on Twitter um, at Heathen History. We're on YouTube at Heathen History. Um, Basically everything's at Heathenhistory.com. You can find all the links. Um, I never could figure out how to make a podcast Instagram. It didn't make any sense to me and I'm old. So a lot of this like, like TikTok and Snapchat confuse me. Um, yeah. so just just know that I'm old. Um, but yeah, and then also um Facebook's usually the easiest way to get hold of us. But and as far as the podcast, if you're listening to this podcast, wherever you're listening to this podcast, unless it's like on the website, if you search in Heathen History, you'll probably find us too, because we're on I think every platform that I could find to put us on. So
0: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Mine downloads automatically every time you pop you post one.
1: And and that's great. That's one thing I like about podcasts is it does kind of come to you and show up and you don't have to search it out. It comes to you.
0: It does. It does. And just for people who are wondering what the heck is Troth of course, I've talked about it before. And it's a convention for people who are interested in inclusive heathenry sponsored by the troth, the troth.org. And there will be links to it. And it's a fun thing. It's fun when it's in person because... We get to see each other face to face. We can hug each other. We can uh, have little chats into the wee hours of the night. Uh, But this year is going to be just fine. We're going to have a really fun time having a a virtual one online. And that means just a lot of people are going to be able to join from the comforts of their home and in the ways uh, a whole different experience. It's going to be, I think, a lot of fun. So I just want to say
1: you don't need to be a member to attend. As yes. public relations director, I do feel the obligation to say, we are the largest gathering of inclusive heathens every year.
0: Excellent. I, yeah, I just have awesome. to say
1: that because, you know, that's, that's my job. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then also, after that, Firth Forge, which is the International Inclusive Heathen Conference, is also going to be virtual this year. Um, yeah, so and that's, that's going to be in August. That is the one great thing. This thing's been going on since, what, 80? The first one's in 87? So...
2: Now we're well, 88, I think.
1: 88, yeah. 88, yeah. So we've gone since 88. So we're wow. We we're we've got this. And I think it's gonna be fun. Um and also if you're in Arkansas and uh you should check out Blackbear Kindred, uh, blackbearkindred.org. That's our kindred. Uh we are the oldest inclusive kindred in Arkansas, and uh we have lots of events and stuff for everybody, and, and I think we're a lot of fun.
2: We're doing it right.
1: We are Um, I like to think that we're a lot of fun too. So uh, we like to get together and at our German beer hall when we can. And it's great.
0: That sounds great. Well, I appreciate you two coming on uh, and chatting with us for a while. And I think, I think we have to end it with a, a hail to Wotan, don't we?
1: Yes.
2: Mm -hmm. All right okay all together two three Routon. yeah <laughs>
0: thanks so much <laughs> I appreciate it y'all have a great time and everyone needs to check out heathen history podcast it's it's a lot of fun I listen to it whenever I can the latest right now is episode 15 and we're going to talk about the Germanic romanticism and we just finished listening to British romanticism and it's it's really quite interesting so uh, do check out Ben and Lauren on the Heathen History Podcast. Thank, thank you very so much.
1: much. And thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Please leave positive comments on iTunes and other podcast distributors. This helps others to find the podcast. Please send feedback and ideas to giftswithweird at gmail.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Weird Gifts. Facebook at Gifts of the Weird and on Instagram, at Gifts one Check out the show notes for links. Thank you, and hell to God. We'll it
1: wrong to love so fast when all it cost me was a friend? They say pride goes before the fall. Broken hearts upon my wall. Reap the crops that
2: I have sold. Nothing but regrets to call my own.